So we are diverting from the book of Acts this morning to the book of Jonah. So, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 1. Now, a little bit of a background on the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah as a genre is satirical, uh, meaning you are supposed to laugh at Jonah. Like, it's intentionally written that way. Uh, so just take a moment, and I, I know we're in a Baptist church, and we feel like laughing's not allowed. That's, that's why you never laugh at Marco's jokes, right? Because you're like, they're so funny, but I'm not supposed to laugh. Take that down, right? Enjoy Jonah, because I would put this uh, diplomatically. Jonah is, is what scholars refer to as a donkey brain. He's not, he's, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. We're going to see it this morning, but he's actually a smart guy, but the stuff he does is absurd. So laugh with me at Jonah. Also, the book of Jonah, you may have noticed, is listed in the Minor Prophets. It is a message to the people of Israel in narrative form. And so while it's a satire and you're supposed to laugh at Jonah, there's supposed to be some reflection happening. Uh, like I said, he's easy to laugh at. He does dumb stuff. If we look at ourselves and examine our hearts this morning, we should see that there's a little bit of Jonah in us. So, beginning in chapter 1 of Jonah, it is, it is marked by pushing the buttons too many times. Now it's not working. There we go. Uh, it is marked by three uh, commands, three actions by God, and three responses by Jonah. And the first one is pretty straightforward and simple. We read in beginning in verse 2, God said, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, this is his response, set out to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, well, geography lesson, ancient Near East. Israel is like here, right? Assyria, the, where Jonah is supposed to go, Nineveh, is all the way over here to the east. Jonah went that way. Went the complete opposite direction upon receiving this command from Yahweh, which should make us ask the question, like, why? That seems a little bit, Jonah, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You're trying to go the opposite direction. He said, go east, you went west. Well, we understand why Jonah did this if we understand who the Assyrians were, who the Ninevites were. So Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and it is one of the most cruel and wicked and evil empires to have ever existed. Uh, in this time period, they were the most powerful, the most dominant. They had kind of risen from the Bronze Age collapse. They had been the first to, to really get a handle on the forging of iron, so that set them ahead of their counterparts. And they were going around the ancient Near East, the area in which Israel resided, and they were conquering everybody. And as a matter of fact, they're, I mean, at the, the time of the writing of Jonah, or the time that Jonah takes place, they're knocking on Israel's door. Like, Jonah knows who these people are and what is likely coming from them. And so they were, they were cruel and they're conquering, but if you rebelled against them, they were even 
more wicked. And I, I found this excerpt about what the Assyrians did to a group of people called the Elamites who had rebelled against them. And this is just a taste of what they did. Ashurbanipal, the, the king, was about to leave Arbella for Nineveh. And the severed head of the Elamite ruler was entrusted to his general Danunu's neck for transport. So, the head of the king was removed and tied around the general's neck, who was likely his cousin, who was then forced to march back to Nineveh with that around his neck. As the musicians led the ghastly procession into Nineveh, the terrible sight crazed Hamundaba and Nabodunik, the ambassadors who had received their commissions from the dead monarch. One tore his beard, the other thrust his sword into his chest. The Gumbulu chieftains had spoken blasphemy against the Assyrian gods, and for this crime they had their tongues torn out by their roots and were skinned alive. Danunu, the general, was placed on a rack and slaughtered like a lamb. His brothers were slain and their flesh distributed among the surrounding lands. Nabunaid and his brother were forced to crush the bones of their father, and the head of the Elamite king found its final resting place over the gate which led to Asher. So think, I mean, just the most wicked people. That's just a taste. Uh, if you read accounts of what they did to the Egyptians when they rebelled, or the Babylonians when they rebelled, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear we're, we're going to read later that Jonah, Jonah doesn't not want to go to the, to the Assyrians because of fear. He doesn't want to go because he hates them, because he has determined that they are evil. He did not believe that they were worthy of God's mercy and justice. And we're going to see that Jonah knows exactly what is going to happen if he delivers this message. We're going to see that later. But also, we should take a moment and consider this, this idea of fleeing from the presence of the Lord. As we'll see, Jonah knows a lot about Yahweh. He knows what Yahweh is in control over, and he knows that he... See, yes, he fled from the presence of the Lord, but not in the sense that he thought he could like escape the, the bounds of God's power or control on earth, but more... So scholars believe in the sense that he thought, if I just make this a little bit difficult, God will choose somebody else to go. I was thinking of, of a way to express this or illustrate this, and I was like, oh, it'd be like, you know, you look at me, and let's say I was in the woods in Canada, and a grizzly bear, boom, right there, right? I'm not running away from a grizzly bear. Like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to outrun it, right? Not going to happen, but if Craig's with me, I got a chance, right? I can outrun Craig. The bear is going to get to Craig before it gets to me, especially because, like, there's a 60% chance Craig's getting hurt this weekend. Let's be honest with ourselves, dude. He, he's injured all the I can outrun Craig, right? So that's Jonah's thought process. I don't have to outrun God. I just have to outrun the, the schmuck who he picks next. And that, yeah, I... Now, okay, first of all, I'd like to say, if you now have the image of Craig and I running from a bear, you're welcome, okay? I, that's my gift to you this morning. But also, as a very apt analogy, because we actually do that to Craig, because God has given us a command to preach a message of repentance, the gospel, right, to people 
who need saving. And sometimes we don't do so out of, out of fear or, or awkwardness or sometimes a lack of faith that it's going to take effect. But sometimes we don't do so because we don't believe that those people are worthy of God's mercy and justice. And we don't think, oh, I can just avoid God in this, this command for like the rest of my life. We just think, I just gotta, I gotta make it so that Craig's in the way. I'll just get him around Craig and he'll do the rest, right? But the command was given to all of us, not just to Craig. So, take away. Don't let Craig get eaten by the bear. All right, first service was more lively. Okay, <laughs> All right, so Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh. He says, make me. Goes the opposite direction. God is like, I'm not done with you. And this is another important thing to note, that God could have chosen somebody else very, very easily. I mean, Jonah is, he's like a petulant child. He, he's like a toddler. The stuff that he does is just like, dude, stop throwing a tantrum, get up off the floor, especially in chapter four. I can't wait to get to chapter four. But he could use somebody else, but God, he wants to save the Assyrians. He wants to save the Ninevites, but he also wants to do something to Jonah. He wants to work on Jonah's heart, and it's the same with us. He could use anybody to, to reach that person, right, or that group of people. But he's not just concerned about that group. He's concerned about you, and he's not satisfied to just have you saved without changing and transforming your heart through the process of sanctification. So, next action by God, he hurls a storm at the ship. I love the Hebrew there. He threw the storm at the ship, and Jonah is given an opportunity to repent, to say, "Guy, hey, sailors, we got to turn around because this, is, this storm is because of me. Uh, we got to go back. I got to go to Nineveh. And instead, this, this man goes into the hull of the ship and goes to sleep. I don't know how. I just, but like, it's such a weird image. Like, God's like, he, Jonah's like, okay, there's this storm. This is bad. The sailors are freaking out. I think I'll take a nap because I'm not going to Nineveh. That's the extent of his ridiculousness. So God prompts further action. The sailors are freaking out. By the way, sailors at this time, you know, it's not like they necessarily liked being on the sea they generally didn't leave sight of land because they were afraid of the sea and they didn't even spend the night on their ships most of the time. They would, they would beach every night and spend the night on a beach. So them being stuck in a storm is, I mean, they're not like, oh, we got this. No, they're like, ah, they're freaking out. So they cast lots to determine whose fault this is. Who has done this to us? And it falls to Jonah. And again, all Jonah has to say is like, all right, turn around. If it is, all we have to do is turn around, and we'll be good. But he says, you know what? Uh, it's me. I serve Yahweh, the God of the land and the sea, and he has sent this storm, and just throw me overboard. I'd rather die than deliver a message of repentance to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. And now there's a, there's a contrast here because the, the sailors don't hear that and say like, okay, great, and throw them overboard. They make attempts to get back to land. They throw all the cargo overboard that they might lighten the ship and improve their chance of survival without throwing this man 
overboard, right? Like they're obedient, like they are, they are trying to do the right thing. And Jonah's like, dude, just throw me overboard. Like, I don't, I'm, like, I'm not going to Nineveh. And the storm continues raging, and so they eventually pick him up and throw him into the sea. And I love verse 16 of chapter 1. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Meaning like, these guys, these are unbelievers. These are not Jewish people. They believed. And they were acting obediently and righteously. Meanwhile, Jonah's so stubborn that he chooses to get thrown over the side of, the, of a ship into the sea that he might avoid going to Nineveh. Nineveh. That's how much he hates these people. So he says, make me again. And God says, okay, I will. I'm not going to let you die in the sea. I am going to send a large fish to swallow you up. And we read that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and nights. Again, this is satire. Jonah's absurd. This is a prophetic message to the Israelites. And what we're seeing here is Jonah given multiple opportunities to respond obediently to God's commands. That's, that's reflected in the history of Israel as well. They're given opportunity after opportunity to act in obedience. And they just decided to ignore him many times. And again, like, I don't want to offend anybody. So if you have gone so far as to say, I refuse to be obedient, I'd rather be thrown overboard in a storm on the sea, then I'm sorry, but I'm guessing none of us have done that, right? Like probably haven't, haven't gone to that great of lengths, but this is a good opportunity to reflect on what, what have we done to avoid, especially delivering a message of repentance, the gospel to people in need. So Jonah is swallowed by the fish, and in chapter 2, we, we read this, this psalm of thanksgiving, and scholars believe that this was, this was at least recorded uh, after he was in the belly of the fish, but that this this prayer is a reflection of a change in Jonah's heart that took place over the course of the three days that he was in the belly of the fish because it begins with a lament. He begins by saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard me. You cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away for, from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See, Jonah here, apparently content with a somewhat quick death at sea, is not so content uh, the prospect of a slower, longer death in the belly of a fish, and he's beginning to, he doesn't want to die anymore. But when he's using this, this language of, you know, I'm, I'm banished from your eyes, I'm driven from your sight. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In the ancient Near, Near East, death was seen as the ultimate separation from God. And so there's, there's a sense in which 
Jonah believes like this is his most separated from God in the belly of this fish. Yet in verse 6, it turns into a hope for salvation. He says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. See, he, in the, in the belly of the fish, he begins to express faith that he will be rescued. He will be saved. He will once again look on the temple and worship and sacrifice there. And he ends with thanksgiving in verse 9. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. So it culminates with this declaration of of I have been delivered, right? God took me down, and he did a work in me, but he brought me back up. And it's important to note that there's, there's a theme of going down in the book of Jonah. He goes down to Joppa. No. Who went to Joppa? He did go down to Joppa. I was right. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the hole of the ship. He goes down into the sea. And there's an extent to which all this going down results in God saying, okay, you, you want to go down. You want some separation from me? Okay, I'm going to use that. I will take that even a little bit further so that I may transform your heart in this place of darkness and suffering and pain. And like Jonah Sometimes we need to be taken to spiritual depths to be corrected in our disobedience. I think it's, it's good, Jonah's a good reminder to consider whether or not the, whatever trial or, or difficulty or suffering we're facing is, is kind of like, is God, is this a result of my disobedience and is God trying to teach me something here? Is there a way in which I need to turn from my path and repent and obey him. We turn away from God. We go down and so he takes us further. Because again, he could, he could use somebody else, but he wants us. He wants you. He wants your heart to be transformed. He's not content with just using Craig or the elders for everything. He wants you as well. Chapter 3, I love the way this begins. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it to, the, to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, one interesting note about the Hebrew grammar here is that that great city, uh, there's, a, there's a possessive element there, and it's as if God is saying, it is a great city to me, not in the sense that, Oh, the buildings are great, and I love the statues, and the gardens are really pretty, and they are powerful. It's like, no, it's important to him. Even this wicked, evil city is important to the Lord. And so Jonah, he's done with the make me, just says, yes, sir, I'm going. And now this is a, this is a journey of 500 miles. So I don't know how long it would take to walk. Uh, probably a few days, right? A few weeks. Jonah's got some time here to craft this message of repentance. I assume that if I were to give you a message of repentance to deliver to the people in Ohio who desperately need it, 
you, you would, at least on the drive down there, you would think about what you were going to say. Repent from the Buckeyes. Join the, no, I'm just joking, join the national champions. What? Anyways, you think about it though. Like I thought, Believe it or not, I actually thought about what I was going to say this morning. I did a tiny bit of research. I rehearsed it. I practiced it. I had so many ideas run through my mind that most of them were really donkey-brained is a good way to put it, and I discarded those, but like I prepared actually. You would too, but Jonah walks into the city. He walks a day into the city, and this, get ready for this. I'm going to knock your socks off. He goes, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What a, what a, what a winner of a, of a delivery there. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's all you had is 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I think there's, a, there's an aspect to which, like, yes, we get this prayer of thanksgiving in chapter 2, and Jonah's heart has been changed, but he, like us, he's experiencing some spiritual ups and downs, and 500 miles later, after walking a day into a wicked city, he's not, he's going to do it, but he's not happy about it. So this is his message, and I, just using, using logic and common sense, I would generally think that to an extent, if that was my message to people, it wouldn't land super well. I, I toyed with the idea just saying that at the beginning of this service and walking out and seeing if that would work. Um, I was advised against that. But, like, <laughs> but yeah, that, so that is his message. He, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not happy about this, but I'm going to do it because I, I, I had enough with the fish. And the response of the people is, is actually quite incredible because they respond by declaring a fast, wearing sackcloth. They even uh, make the animals fast with them. These are signs of mourning over their sin and of repentance. Citywide, right? Evil empire, most wicked city on earth. They hear 40 days in Nineveh is overthrown and they immediately repent. And I think... And just reflecting on this, their response should make us ashamed of our lack of response to God's mercy and justice. They had to hear a sentence, probably not even happily delivered, and we spend week after week coming here, hearing God's word, reading God's word at home, talking about God's word with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we continue in our disobedience and sin. We're not nearly as contrite or repentant sometimes as the people of Nineveh were at hearing a pretty short sentence. So, as a result, God relents from his blazing wrath. I love, I love the Hebrew there, his blazing Wrath, And also it's important to note that they didn't even know if that was going to work. They said, who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his blazing wrath so that we do not perish. They weren't even sure it was going to work, but they did it anyways because they recognized that they had sinned. They were being offered maybe mercy and justice, and they wanted to take it if they could. So God relents from his blazing wrath, and he did not 
do it. And again, this is, as, as an Israelite reading this, you very well may be thinking, like, he relented? Like, even them? Like, they, they got the mercy and justice too? Like, I didn't want them to have it, but I can't believe they did because they're so evil. And God's like, no, like that, them too. And as a matter of fact, like, I really wanted them. They, this is a great city to me. It is greatly important to me. I want them to be saved as well. It doesn't matter how evil there, and it doesn't matter if you think, Jonah, that they're unworthy of my mercy and justice. It matters that I think they, they need it, and I want to give it to them. So they are saved, and chapter 4 is, is just delightful because Jonah is at, at peak donkey-brained activity here. We read in verse 1, but this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became very angry. There's irony here because the, there, there, were, there was evil involved in all this, right? The, the evil was the evil that the Ninevites were doing that they had repented of, and here Jonah is like, this is the worst. And here we see, like, again, I said this at the beginning, but jo- Jonah knows Yahweh very, very well. We read in chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That, this, that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." See, Jonah knew God's character the entire time. This, the, the words that he uses to describe God, he's not just pulling that out of thin air. That is how God described himself on Mount Sinai when Moses, after, after the exodus, right, when the, you get the people out of Egypt, after the plagues, Moses meets God on the mountain. He says, I want to know who you are. Tell me about yourself, please. I want to see you in that is how God describes himself. Not wrathful, not vengeful, but gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Again, Jonah, he did not want to go because of fear. He didn't want to go because he knew that God would forgive the Assyrians. And God says, should I not? care about these people? Should I not have concern for Nineveh? This is a city of 120,000 people. They are important to me. Just like, no, you shouldn't, as a matter of fact. So God provides an illustration. As Jonah goes out of the city to the east, he sits up on a hilltop, and it seems as though he is, he is watching the city to see if they're going to go back to their sinful, evil, wicked ways, because he wants to see it. He's like, just, just forget about the whole repentance thing. I want to see some wrath and destruction here. So God sends a plant that grows overnight, and it provides shade for Jonah. And Jonah wakes up, and he's like, I like that plant. That's a very nice plant. I will take that plant. Thank you very much. While I sit here and wait for Nineveh to hopefully be destroyed. And then the next night, God sends a worm. It eats the plant. It withers. Jonah wakes up, and he's like, Okay, Jonah's a drama queen because he wakes up and he's like, it's so hot. 
I wish I were dead. I'm so angry I could die. And God's like, dude, that was a plant. You're like this worked up about a plant and I don't have a right to be worked up about a city of 120,000 people? If we don't get a response from Jonah, from his previous action, I, I think we could probably guess that he, he still wasn't happy about it. He wasn't happy because his heart didn't reflect God's heart. See, he wanted the Assyrians to be destroyed, but God desired to show his mercy and justice even to the most evil people imaginable. That's what Jonah was so upset about. Let me clarify something here because I've been using this term justice a lot and and we get our, our concept of justice is a little off. When we hear justice, we think getting what you deserve, right? Somebody commits a crime, they, they are sentenced to a number of years in prison or a community service or what have you, and, and if it's a substantial number, we're good with it, right? And we think God's justice works the same, but it, it actually doesn't. Within God's justice is actually wrapped up mercy in grace and his his love. You see, if you you read Timothy Keller's book, Generous Justice, he he walks through all the depictions and, and every time the Bible talks about God's justice and and if you read and understand God's justice, the the most spectacular act of God's justice is actually Jesus dying on the cross. We tend to think of that as the ultimate act of God's grace and mercy, and it is, but it's also his, his justice is happening right there because his justice is merciful. And he desires his justice to be shared to everyone so much so that he was willing to send his son so that whoever should believe in him might not die but have eternal life. And I think we just have to consider the question now, who do we consider unworthy of God's mercy and justice? Thinking through, you know, the Assyrians, you can read about their, their evils and wickedness and, and get a sense of, oh, that was, it's probably good that the Babylonians and Persians and all of them destroyed them or... Think about the Nazis during World War II, like that was an evil group of people. What they were doing was horrible, and they received some justice at least. That's great. But God actually wants to extend his justice to them instead. You know, about a year ago, I was talking to a pastor who had been at a conference and, and spoken with several pastors from Iraq. And he was telling me about his interaction with them, and they were actually in hiding, not so much because they were Christians, but because they had all been members of ISIS. And that was like initially my first response was like, ooh, like that's not good. But then I thought, man, that's such an incredible display of God's mercy and justice that even, even they could be called brothers. And they're in hiding because if the Iraqi government finds them, they'll be killed. What about, what about individuals? As I was discussing this, this sermon and 
this topic with a friend of mine. He asked a really, really good question. He said, who would you not want to see in heaven? Who in your life would, if you were in heaven and they showed up, who would you be like, ooh, you made it? I was thinking of C.S. Lewis's book, The, The Great Divorce, in which people are given an opportunity to visit heaven to see if they would like it. And one man visits heaven and he's a very, I did my best and I was, I was, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I was pretty good and I'm a good man, good hardworking man, right? And he meets a man, or is met rather, by a man who had killed a, a mutual friend. And he, he's like, you made it? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I'm here. It's, it's wonderful here. He's like, how did, like, how? He's like, God forgave me. He's like, well, what about that guy who you killed? And he's like, he's here too. You, you get to meet him later. This is, this is God's justice in action, but the guy couldn't see past his hatred and bitterness. So he opted to leave heaven because his idea of heaven doesn't align with God's justice and mercy. What about people who have hurt you deeply, deeply? I know... Unfortunately, we all have been hurt greatly by people. But I, I ask this question to people a lot who, who speak with bitterness about those who have hurt them. What is the biblical standard for forgiveness? At, at what point do you get to say, well, I don't, they did this so I don't have to forgive them anymore. And I hate to spoil this for you, but there's not a, a point. It's, it's everything because we have been forgiven for everything that we have done as well. I'm going to ask you to spend some time reflecting, searching your hearts today for for bitterness, for hatred at a person or a group of people who have hurt you. And I, I acknowledge that hurt and I empathize with you in that. But at the same time, don't let your, your hurt, your, your hatred, lead you to condemn some as unworthy of God's mercy and justice because he doesn't. He says everybody's worthy of it. I'm going to close with this. This quote, I don't know where it's from. I tried to find the source and I couldn't. don't know where I stumbled across it, frankly. But Paul, the apostle, one of the main actors in the book of Acts. He started as a, as a murderer. He calls himself that. He calls himself the, the worst of sinners, the least of the apostles. But this quote, somebody said this, and it's beautiful. Paul the apostle was welcomed into heaven by the cheers of those he had put to death. 